Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is one for all those crypto fans out there. He is the founder of Vega Protocol. Now, Vega is a platform for creating and trading derivatives on a fully decentralized network, or DeFi network. We introduced some of the concepts he's been working on, but I would recommend reading his white paper at vega.xyz, the website vega.xyz. He was a fascinating guest. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to him, and the potential for Vega is enormous. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Barney Mannerings, welcome to the podcast. Barney, how did you start your career? Um, I started my career in uh, computer science and ended up in sort of the traditional trading and, and markets world for sort of over a decade. I was looking for, I guess, the the most interesting and difficult problems to solve and found a lot of that in the city. I see. And then what drew you to the crypto space and specifically what led you to start Vega Protocol? Yeah, um, I guess it was kind of almost like going back to my sort of computer science roots. Back at university, I was really interested in uh, sort of cryptography and privacy and uh, and those kind of technologies. And then when Bitcoin came around in sort of 2009, I, I read the white paper and got pretty interested. And uh, in sort of 2012, 2013, I started to get more involved, ended up doing some uh, some Bitcoin mining on a very, very small scale, um, ended up getting into the you know, Ethereum pre-sale again in a really small way, but enough to get me interested in fiddling around with some of the tech. So I'd got really interested in all of this stuff. And um, with my experience from the sort of you know building trading systems, I was really, really interested when Ethereum came along because I was very interested in how you could replace sort of centralized actors in the marketplace with, with decentralized protocols. But nonetheless, you know, I think that wasn't the right time. And, and Ethereum is incredibly constrained in terms of computational capacity, in terms of throughput and, and things like that. And so I actually ended up kind of leaving it alone for a, a few more years until we started Vega. Okay, and we'll get on to the vision for Vega, but maybe let's start with some definitions. What is the definition of DeFi? Yeah, so DeFi stands for decentralized finance. And really, it's kind of you know, a collection of things. And, and at its broadest, it's simply the idea that um, that you can potentially run the financial system without the kind of centralized intermediaries that we're used to. And, uh, you know, if you think about the way things work, that's all, again, it's kind of a bit like going back to its roots, because when you had sort of bearer instruments, and when you had, you know, cold hard cash and gold bullion, then you know, really, there was no no centralized intermediary. It's all, all based on what you have and what you hold. But as we digitized things and as things became sort of more controlled and regulated, you know, what happened was you ended up with a lot of uh, a lot of institutions which have a lot of control over the markets and over the financial system because they're kind of necessary to intermediate between, you know, whether it's to execute contracts, whether it's to hold on to money and move it around electronically, whether it's to sort of mediate in the dealing of shares. And what DeFi effectively does is says, well, you know, we've now got some new some new computer science primitives which allow us to say that we can trust the decision of a network of you know, maintaining these movements of value or you know these kind of records of where things are without needing to trust a centralized intermediary. And that's, uh, that's really exciting because even just at the base level, the cost of these intermediaries is super high. But also there's a bunch of things that you can do um, once you have these kind of completely open networks that you couldn't do before. And how does how does Vega Protocol leverage this technology? So, if you sort of look at the history of this technology, you started off with the the simplest building blocks of finance. So, effectively, you know the assets, and you know Bitcoin, I guess, was the original blockchain native asset. But 
obviously it's super volatile and, and it has its place as kind of a digital gold and is an incredibly important part of this. But people in general use, um, you know, use other assets like sort of fiat currencies or or stocks and shares. And that was kind of the, the revolution of, uh, of tokenization, the ability to have these kind of infinite fungible and then event then as, as this year is showing non-fungible as well, asset types that can be managed by these blockchain systems. Then you got the kind of the spot DEXs. So that is effectively the exchanges that let you do spot trades between these assets. And then the next piece of the ecosystem and, you know, a really huge part of the traditional financial system, in fact, you know, in, in many, by many measures, larger than the actual underlying markets themselves are the derivatives markets. And so, you know, Vega and, and hence the name is intended to do for derivatives markets what spot DEXs do for for sort of spot trading and what, uh, you know, assets and, and tokens like ERC-20s and Bitcoin do for the underlying assets. And so Vega is really the idea of, of building the management of margin products and financial products which have a lifetime and bringing that onto the blockchain. So this is a, it's a heavily, re- at the moment, it's a, ve- a heavily regulated industry with, you know, counterparty risks measured with margin um, requirements measured and, and managed. On the blockchain, how are those risks measured and managed in such an effective way? Oh, so you've got, um, I guess you've got two separate things there, which you, you mentioned. First one is regulation and the second one is risk. Um, so on the regulation side, Vega doesn't really change anything except perhaps uh, perhaps where you go to look to find out whether or not someone is obeying the rules and, and sort of where some of the responsibility lies. Um, you know, obviously, if you have a, a centralized exchange, it's very easy to say you can't let these things happen. Whereas if people are effectively dealing peer-to-peer with each other, then it's up to each person doing that dealing to obey the rules themselves. So you know, really on the regulatory side, not much changes. If you're in the UK, you're going to have to obey the UK rules, etc. But what does happen potentially is you remove one of the middlemen who has to be regulated and you're, you're regulating the, the buyers and sellers and the traders themselves. But, but for a rate, just staying on regulation, that, that must be a headache for the regulator because instead of regulating, a, you know, members of a stock exchange, for example, they have to regulate all market participants, do they not? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an approach that's going to be different for some sorts of markets, I think. But then don't forget, you know, the OTC markets are absolutely huge and are exactly this position. You know, an OTC market is effectively people calling each other up and, and doing trades and deals and, and being regulated. And, and so, you know, it's really kind of like an automated OTC market in that respect. It does mean that some of the techniques used on, on some exchanges might not work. But on the other hand, you have these blockchains that are incredibly open. So it's quite easy to imagine a world where, a trading firm that's licensed or regulated may simply submit all of their IDs on the blockchains and be legally required to do so, and then have the regulator, you know, effectively run some automated tools to understand everything they've done and even check compliance. So um, it's kind of an interesting one. I think that the tools and the processes and being able to rely on, say, an exchange to do things for you, maybe that goes away. But on the other hand, you know, the amount of transparent data and the ease of access to that actually uh, actually could help in the long run. It just takes the right approach to how to do that regulation. And maybe the, actually the best way to sort of approach the risk side and think about the risks is maybe to use an example. So what would be an example of, of how the Vega platform could be used and perhaps use that example as the choice of the market participant has at the moment? Yeah, um, so... Let's take maybe two examples. You know, the first one is a nice simple one, which is kind of an, an example of how this kind of platform could really help quite a lot of you know, small, small and medium-sized businesses. And that's thinking about things like hedging, say, currency risk. Now, right now, if I'm a commercial banking customer and I, let's say, import to and from Europe, and I'm exposed, therefore, to the euro to sterling exchange rate, 
you know, what I'm going to do is I'm probably going to phone up my, uh, you know, my banking relationship manager and I'm going to tell them what I need to hedge. And they're going to, they're going to quote me a cost. And the, the thing is that this cost is based on somewhere three or four levels down the chain. There's an electronic market with a very low spread for getting hold of the derivative that you need to do this hedging. But then the electronic market making desk in the bank is going to want to add you know, a spread or a markup or a commission, you know, for their part in the process. And then, you know, the the corporate derivatives desk in the bank is going to add the same thing for theirs. And then the relationship manager is going to add something. And so you know, when you look at the actual costs that small and medium-sized businesses are paying for these products, it's they're paying something like 20, 25 times the commissions or fees in total or spread, or however you want to measure it, compared to what's actually there in the market. And it's really just because of these layers of inefficiency. What you could imagine with the Vega protocol or, or something like it is that you can build a front end that effectively makes a you know very friendly, you know, easy to understand front end to a market. So you know, you're not looking at sort of charting and trading measures, but actually, you know, plain English explaining you want to hedge this many euros, you want to hedge it every this often, and then effectively quotes the price based directly on the market and passes you straight through to the market. You'd have access to that through stable coins or or through a custodial partner who manages the the banking to sort of crypto layer for you but then you'd suddenly have access to much much closer to the the market prices and spreads and that would cut out a huge piece of cost so that's just a really simple example of how this might be used but then you know you mentioned risk and so the other example i want to kind of highlight is at the other end of the scale and and to imagine a sort of future scenario where things could have played out very differently to how they did and you know that's if you look back at the the financial crisis in sort of 2007 2008 back then one of the big problems was that there were a lot of derivatives contracts effectively done OTC between large institutions and, and, and funds and other large institutions. And you know, a lot of those contracts was kind of like unknown amounts of them. And many of them were not like, you know, they didn't have large amounts of capital put up. They were kind of trusting each other to all be good for the money because they were large institutions. And so when everything went south really quickly, one of the huge problems was that no one really knew how exposed anyone else was. And because they were worried, they had to assume that all of their counterparties were very exposed as well. And that caused a big problem. And part of that problem was the lack of transparency, accountability, and, and sort of proper accounting for risk because everything was so manual. In a sort of future where something like Vega is being used, every transaction effectively you know, between two parties is, is recorded on the blockchain. And for you know, the majority or even all of the transactions, an amount of money required is, is actually placed, you know, with the system in in an escrow that's kind of entirely decentralized and non-custodial where the system itself cannot go bankrupt but where an amount of money that actually you know deals with the the potential risk that's being caused by this transaction is is very clearly taken and so you know that system can be super transparently audited it can be managed and you could easily argue that if systems like this were in place for you know, those sorts of large deals, then it would be very transparent to regulators how much risk was in the system. It would also be very transparent whether or not positions were well capitalized. And it would also be super easy to unwind them in the event of someone, something going wrong, because everything would be sort of, you know, restored and very, very clear and programmatically available. So, you know, just kind of looking at the the ability of those kind of shared sources of truth and those shared ledgers to reduce risk is, is quite high. Okay, let's take your example just one step further and say you use the example of, of currency. Say someone wanted to hedge their exposure to let's say something a little bit more intangible, say weather. What would be the process of accepting a contract or a, a market into or onto the Vega protocol? So there's a couple of different things to look at here. And and you know, effectively, and, and you'll see this in the white paper and other places, the way the Vega's sort of market framework works is you have the concept of a product. 
and then you have the concept of an instrument, and then you have the concept of a tradable instrument. And once you have a tradable instrument, then it's possible to launch a, a market with that instrument by submitting a, a sort of a proposal to the the protocol, and then that proposal is voted on by the uh, by the governance sort of holders of the protocol. In order to make a proposal like that, let's go back to the product. Vega has built-in products, so the first product that's being launched is futures, cash settled futures. Um, there will also be physically settled futures. There will be swaps. There will be options. There will be perpetuals, and potentially other sort of standardized products. And the advantage of those is that you don't have to do any coding. You don't have to do anything, and you can just take a standardized off-the-shelf product. And if it, if it's sort of configurable options work for you, you can just use it straight away. The alternative that will be available in kind of like the sort of V2 of Vega in probably about a year's time is that you'll actually be able to write a small amount of code to describe a new product or something, some kind of, you know, aggregate combination product that you want to create. And that will, you know, allow the creation of more complex and arbitrarily interesting and weird products, but meaning you have to actually do a little bit of coding in order to sort of specify how to calculate the cash flows. And unlike things like Ethereum, where you kind of have to build the whole trading system on Ethereum, the trading system already exists with Vega, so you're really just building the definition of the product. How does it calculate cash flows? How does it know, you know, what everyone's sort of movements are as, as the product progresses and as input from the outside, uh, what you might call Oracle data comes in and, and causes settlement to happen. So once you've then got the product, whether you wrote it yourself or use one of the built-in ones, you then define an instrument. And defining an instrument is basically you know, filling in all of the blanks on the form for the product. So you know, if you take a futures uh, product, you're going to want to know things like when's the expiry of that product? You know, when does it mature? The other thing you're going to want to know is where do I get the data to decide what the, the kind of settlement price is at maturity? So um, that's kind of called an oracle in the in the blockchain world. And you know, Vega has a sort of framework for using multiple different types of oracles from other blockchains, um, from its own blockchain, from other sources. Uh, so you're effectively going to pick the right oracle. And you're picking that source just as the same as in, in sort of traditional financial contracts, defining exactly where the number that's used to settle the contract is absolutely key because that determines how much money everyone makes or loses at the end. Um, so once you've kind of filled all that stuff in, then you kind of have this instrument. You have a product plus all the parameters needed to say how it settles. The final thing that's needed to make it a tradable instrument is a risk model. Now, the simplest risk model is basically to say this has to be fully collateralized, and that's very simple. Uh, and then beyond that, there are a number of stochastic risk models that will be available. And like with products, eventually it will be possible to program your own if you will need a special purpose one. But initially, we have things where, you know, sort of standardized risk models that you can parameterize you know, with volatility and, and tower parameters and other other parameters. Um, and then Vega can use that risk model to calculate the margin. And that's the kind of magic is that uh, you take this kind of instrument definition plus a risk model and its parameters, um, and then you use the kind of decentralized governance system to calibrate that model for the market you're proposing. And that allows Vega to calculate in real time, actually, when you, when you trade on Vega, it calculates real-time margin requirements. It marks to market in very near real time. Um, and it uses that to ensure that everyone's position is well collateralized all the time. So, uh, so let's just think about that example of, of the weather. I would develop the product, the product being maybe probability of rain. You would then run a scenario analysis on you know, back data in the same way risk models run scenario analysis. Yeah, so if I was doing a weather product, I might just use a product like a futures product. So I might just say these are rainfall futures, for instance, um, in which case I can use the standardized product, don't need to build anything special. Just say this is a standardized product where the settlement value is number of millimeters of rain in the month of June 
across the whole month or the average per day or whatever it is that mm-hmm. you want. Um, and then, you know, so you could use a futures product there or you could define something more complex. Um, so the risk model itself is the, is the part which says, once I've got the parameters, how do I calculate the margin? So, you know, you can use sort of things like jump diffusion models or, you know, other sort of normally distributed type models or, or more, more complex ones, you know, Black Shoals or whatever, if you're doing options, or you can do things that actually work on a Monte Carlo kind of simulation of the product. So you can actually, you know, have something that simulates the product moving forward under sort of various various assumptions. And then to calibrate it, yes. So when you're when you're actually proposing the making the market proposal and you've selected the risk model, the parameters you use would probably come from some kind of back testing or unless you've got something. Obviously if you're you know if you had an options market, for instance, you could use the implied volatility from the options market to set the risk parameters for the futures market. But if you don't have that, then you're going to do some kind of simulation or some kind of back testing on the available historic data, and you're going to use that to set the parameters for the risk model. Um, and those are changeable. So the you know the the chain on the Vega chain has a governance process, and effectively the token holders on the Vega chain and and in future also the the liquidity providers who effectively support each market uh, have a role in being able to actually redo those calculations and, and propose adjustments to the calibration of that risk model over time. So if the model seems to be sort of out of whack, then that can be adjusted on the fly. So are you shifting from a sort of centralized system where there's a centralized institution whose job it is to accept or reject contracts to a sort of stakeholder-led system? Would that be a, a fair Absolutely, comparison? yeah. In fact, you know, the, the goal of the governance system of Vega is that the the governance power over time, you know, initially there are early investors and, and the team and a number of other sort of you know, individuals and groups involved in the kind of governance of the system. But, you know, the goal of the system is that over time, the governance power is is distributed by the way the protocol works. The governance power will end up sort of becoming distributed uh, into the, the hands of the participants who use it. Um, and in fact, you know, as I mentioned, what the although it's not there in this very early MVP, what will actually happen is we will split the governance decisions. So some sort of network decisions will be, you know, all participants. And then for sort of market-based governance decisions, like the decision to update the risk model parameters for a specific market, will actually be primarily chosen by the the market makers or liquidity providers in that market, because they're actually, you know, they sort of have skin in the game for getting this right. Mm, I see. And so how will Vega actually make money? The company that, that is Vega, you know, in the long term, Vega doesn't make money. And and that sounds weird. And it's kind of, uh, it is slightly weird. It's sort of the sort of the way that some of this crypto stuff works. You know, Vega is a sort of fat protocol, so to speak. And the protocol is powered by the token. And effectively, early on, you know, we, we effectively make money from from holding on to some of the tokens and, and, and if you like, being able to distribute them and, and sell them in order to launch the network. But, you know, over time, that will be less and less the case. And, uh, effectively we will only make money if we convince the community that we're doing something useful so at the moment we are effectively paying for the development of the protocol that's going to be valuable in the future by selling tokens to people who believe it's going to be valuable in the future and that's a kind of you know that's a benefit to everyone and then um, you know in future because the 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 fees come from trading but they belong to the protocol and they belong to the the system not to not to a team or a company or or me or anyone like that Um, and so you know, in the future, what will happen is the the users of the system will effectively be able to allocate, you know, some of the revenue that exists in the system to pay for work to be done. So, if the Vega sort of development team are doing, 
good work and uh, you're improving the protocol and that's to everyone's benefit, then they will apply using the same governance system I mentioned earlier and say, you know, we think it would be worth paying us to do this. And and the participants of the system will say, sure, have some money. Um, But equally, if other people come along and are more effective at being stewards of the system or or improving it, then, then the money will go to them. So really, the team is kind of designing itself out of the out of the driving seat over the course of the next couple of years? Maybe this is a difficult question, but um, on a network basis, where does or how does morality play its part? And just bear with me on this question, because if I could, for example, make a market in something like, I don't know, number of deaths in London, what would be the roadblock to stop me doing that? And or, or indeed, is there a roadblock to stop me doing that? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's worth saying that a lot of the the DeFi protocols that exist today have have no roadblock at all. So, you know, they are literally open and you can jump onto the Ethereum blockchain or whatever and deploy a new market with no one's approval needed. We don't really like that. And there's two reasons we don't like that. The first is the one you talked about, which is kind of, you know, being able to create extremely unethical markets. But the second is also fraud. Like, you know, one of the things we see today on things like Uniswap is people just create markets. There's at least two that I know of on Uniswap that pretend to be markets in the Vega token, despite the fact it doesn't exist yet and can't be traded. Uh, and so, you know, that just means that people have to sort of, you know, be beware and that there's a, a kind of a big warning sign up at the sort of at the gates of the protocol. Um, and, and that doesn't, doesn't feel great either. So the way we've designed the protocol is that there is that governance uh, mechanism, which is controlled by the token holders. And the idea is that the token holders will vote for things that are a net positive for the protocol and for, for the development of the network, uh, and will vote against things that are more of a sort of a negative. And so what we expect is that if something horrendously unethical or horrendously fraudulent comes along, um, it'll get voted down. Obviously, everyone's red lines there are going to be different. And, you know, with the, looking at the kind of, you know, the global and open and permissionless nature of things, you know, I'm certain there will be markets that some people would not would not want or that might be illegal in, in some some jurisdictions that get created by people who disagree or are, are in jurisdictions where that's okay. Um, so, you know, there will always be be things that potentially cross some people's line. And that's a, a kind of a given with a completely open and permissionless protocol that's actually sort of peer-to-peer. Um, but in general, things that are just a, a complete net bad and uh, will, will get voted against, and, and particularly early on when it's sort of, you know, well-known people and institutions that have invested in, in Vega, I suspect over time as this becomes more and more decentralized, it may become easier to to slip things through, but then, you know, the network will have its own sort of network effects and other ways of dealing with that. And turning to front runnings, how, how would the system prevent front running and I suppose the question really is specifically around latency and, you know, the speed at which people can place their trades. Is there a sort of speed arbitrage that a con trader could take advantage of within the Vega protocol? Yeah, so there's there's probably two, two things going on there as well. Um, so the first front-running sort of point to talk about is is kind of the front running that you see on on other crypto networks like ethereum right now and that effectively works like this you have a big pool of transactions that are waiting to get included in a block everyone can look at those transactions they're kind of open on the network uh, but the order that they appear in the block is not actually based on the order they arrived in but is based on how much someone's willing to pay so if i go take a look at transactions look at what everyone's buying or selling and then do the appropriate thing based on that but you know, pay more, then I get to go ahead of them and uh, and effectively, you know, manipulate the market or or take advantage of those orders that I've I've seen. 
Um, Vega has a protocol called Wendy, the the fairness protocol. Uh, that's built into the consensus layer of Vega, and it's designed to to combat exactly that. And effectively, what it does is it forces the nodes to prove that they are effectively putting transactions in in the order they saw them. So it effectively forces the, means that if if a transaction was on average seen before your transaction was on average seen before mine by the majority of the nodes, then your transaction is going to be first in the in the blockchain, and there's nothing I can do about it. So that solves solves that problem. Then, of course, there is the the other problem which you sort of mentioned, which is, you know, the Vega network at launch will probably have a latency of around you know, 0.8 seconds. And if if the primary market for something is somewhere else, you know, if the primary market is that say it's on the London Stock Exchange, let's say, and let's say this is a synthetic exposure to the price of a stock, then then sure, yeah, you know, you're going to be able to arbitrage between between the one and the other. And it's not that that's a, a valueless activity. You'll be helping to move the market, and but equally, when the when the primary market of those things moves to somewhere like Vega, then obviously, then that that situation is kind of is less less important. There's a lot of research into this kind of stuff. There's some great research from uh, I think it's Chicago Booth University on frequent batch auctions, and are actually sort of looking into what's the kind of what's the actual utility of very low latency trading. And and in general, it seems to be the case that although you can make money by doing low latency arbitrage and trading like that, there's not a huge amount of social utility into it. And so in, in the long term, we don't think it's a, it's a major issue. But certainly, yeah, if the, if the primary market's somewhere else, then some people will be able to make money by doing that arbitrage. And then, Barney, looking to the future and maybe trying to sort of assess the addressable market, what effect will the Vega protocol have on the incumbents, do you believe? And do you say, is there a place for both um, you know, traditional exchanges, centralized exchanges, and DeFi networks. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it would be pretty amazing to imagine that, uh, pretty fantastical almost to imagine that you could get rid of all centralized exchanges. You know, they're, they're very easy to spin up and and potentially have their place. I think the, the bigger question is going to be, well, sort of twofold. The first is the kind of, you know, the hybrid AMM-style liquidity. One of the things that, um, you know, the Vega will, will do in, in, a, in, again, it's sort of version two when we add a, the hybrid liquidity that can be automated is allow the creation of markets that are much smaller than would be sort of feasible with a centralized exchange and the requirement for active liquidity, um, but also just the cost of running this infrastructure. You know, it, it's going to be interesting to see what niche use cases remain where it's worth paying for that infrastructure. And you know, certainly I've had sort of private conversations with senior people on, on trading desks and in banks who are kind of really interested in this technology because they think, well, you know, what if we could get rid of these layers of, of IT and and sort of infrastructure within our organization and, and rely on a decentralized open protocol and then, you know, effectively become a much more leaner kind of business end front office, if you like, but with a lot less back office costs. So even within many of the institutions, there's quite a lot of interest in the, the people making the money to to use some of this technology to reduce their costs. So, you know, I think the the impact will be kind of similar to, you know, if you think about the impact of of the internet on journalism. There are still centralized publications and they still do do good work and investigative things and they still have, you know, used their budgets and, and their skills and capabilities and experience to bring something that, you know, individuals and people on Twitter can't do. But they've been hugely disrupted as well by this kind of influx of citizen journalists, by the influx of, you know, voices from different places and, and new publishing mediums. And I think you'll have the same thing. You know, the institutions and banks will still have their place, they'll still do things, you know, whether it's negotiating large block trades, designing new products, coming up with oracles, warehousing large amounts of risks that other people are unable to. There's still lots of 
lots of roles for them, but they will be changed by this influx of, of the ability to cheaply create markets and for anyone to provide liquidity and, and all of those things. So, you know, I don't think it's mm-hmm. all going away, but I think the change will be quite profound in the sort of, you know, 10 to 20 year time frame. And Barney, final question. What advice would you give to sort of our younger listeners um, who maybe are coming out of university at the moment, maybe even you, know, you could reflect on your own time having come out as a, as a computer science graduate? What advice would you give to them if they are looking for a career in the crypto space? Are there any skills set shortages that you can point to? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the crypto space is super new. The first side is if you're a, if you're a technologist and you understand cryptography, Solidity, Go, Rust, or any of the kind of major technologies and programming languages that are used in the space. There's just a, an incredible shortage of, uh, of people in general, um, you know, security reviewers, everything like that. So on the tech side, there's really just a lot of demand and, uh, and you know, learning, learning the frameworks and platforms that tend to get used in this space and getting familiar with open source code or even contributing yourself to open source projects as a computer scientist or technologist is definitely the way to go. And then sort of on the business side, and and if you're interested in getting into crypto in the other way, I'd also say there's a big shortage there. And one of the things that is missing from a lot of the DeFi space is people who have the kind of the, the business and financial expertise to understand how to design good DeFi products and lots of the stuff that's coming out is is frankly nonsense. So you know, there's a huge amount of huge amount of need for that kind of talent. And I think the key there is probably to to get enough of an understanding of the protocols, like understand what's out there, understand how things like Ethereum work, get hold of some crypto, use wallets, work out how it all works so that you can kind of come in with your with your financial or business knowledge, with your understanding of economics or you know, whatever it is that you, you've specialized in and are really interested in. But if you understand the crypto space and the technology enough that you can demonstrate you can use it and, uh, you know, and, and actually get involved, then, then you'll be very valuable. Barney Manners, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week from Vega Protocol. For any more information on Vega Protocol, do go to their website at vega.xyz. And if you've enjoyed the podcast today, why not like it or let your friends or indeed your colleagues know? The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.